So have you really thought about what goes into your morning cup of coffee? Have you ever taken a look at the back of your coffee creamer to see what's actually inside the bottle? Well, if you do take a look, you might be surprised to find a number of chemicals, oils, and artificial flavors. But don't worry, Laird Superfoods is here to help change that. Laird Superfoods started in 2015 when big wave surfer Laird Hamilton was looking for a coffee but couldn't find one on the market that met his standards. Laird started experimenting with his own morning coffee nearly two decades ago. And he found that when he started adding fats, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. And eventually, when he felt like he had perfected his recipe, he started sharing it with friends in the surf community. And now, he's sharing it with all of the rest of us through Laird Superfoods. And Laird doesn't just make coffee. They also offer functional superfood creamers, instant lattes, prebiotic greens, and a variety of snacks and supplements full of wholesome, plant-based ingredients to keep you charged for wherever life takes you. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code GOPODCAST at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 111 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back, welcome aboard. Inspirational is one of those terms that is exceedingly overused. If you spend any time on the internet, you are probably constantly bombarded by things claiming to be inspirational. Today's episode is one of those instances where I think that the term inspirational is actually appropriate. We are speaking with mother, climber, canyoneer, cancer survivor, Randy Ball. She and I recorded this late summer 2023 at her home up in the mountains of Crestline, California. And this is one of those episodes that runs the gamut from fun, lighthearted, to very serious, in-depth discussions of difficult topics. Strap yourself in, you're going to have a good time, and hopefully you will be inspired as Randy and I talk about dieting, exercise, divorce, the strength of club cancer, the realities of parenting, and the disappointment of the Ricky Schroeder fan club. I think it's safe to say that a lot of you out there are coffee lovers. You probably brew something fresh every morning, or maybe you run to a local coffee shop or drive through on your way to work each morning. But have you ever taken the time to think about what is in your coffee or the other additives you add, like your coffee creamer? Well, Laird Superfood could help you up your coffee game with an entirely new coffee experience. With Laird, you'll get better ingredients, amazing taste, and functional benefits. All products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you are incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. Their coffees are made from all-natural, whole food ingredients, contain naturally occurring MCTs from coconut oil, 
have no artificial flavors, colors, or additives. And the Laird Superfood Creamers are crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code GOPODCAST at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. My name is Randy Ball. I'm an outdoor girl. I grew up in Calabasas. Definitely wasn't raised to be an outdoor girl, but that's where I find myself most at home. And here we are sitting outside. Wait, so you grew up in Calabasas? Mm -hmm. So Calabasas as in like Western Los Angeles, almost As in keeping up with the Kardashians, but before the Kardashians were there, yes. So you were a valley girl? I was a valley girl. You were a valley girl. So you grew up in the valley of Los Angeles. Yep. Probably during the time period when the valley is most mocked and ridiculed on TV. That is exactly when, actually. That is, I went to high school with Ricky Schroeder, and yes, right at those times. Oh, no kidding. So people that are younger that might be listening to this show might not know who that is, but was this <laughs> early 80s? There was a show called Silver Spoons with Ricky Schroeder, and he was a little kid who was like super rich. He was like Richie Rich, the TV series, yeah. kind of. Yeah. So he was your best friend growing up in school? Gosh, I hope he never hears your podcast. No, it was a total letdown. I was in elementary school. I was in his fan club. and oh, I so had... he was already on TV when you knew him. Oh, so no, I didn't know him yet. I didn't okay. know him until okay. high school. But he was on TV before he came to school with us. Right. And so, so by the time you would know him, he had already been on TV. Yes. I had already been in his fan club, and I had already had his poster on my wall, along with all of my other girlfriends, him and Rick Springfield. We met him in high school and he kind of took the fun out of that for us. He was just a guy. He was a guy with supposed to be clear braces and they were yellow and he introduced himself as Rick Schroeder, not like, hi, I'm Rick, Ricky or however. It just was, he was not, no, he wasn't for us. It was kind of a letdown. So Rick Schroeder, AKA Ricky Schroeder, if you're listening right now, which I assume you must be, we forgive you for the mistakes you made as a teenager. We're sure you grew up into a more high quality adult. Yes, afterwards. and you look great with your braces off. So what exactly what exactly does a member of the Ricky Schroeder fan club receive? You get a sticker. Was it a photographic sticker of him? Uh, no, it was just a sticker. <laughs> of what? It, was, it just, it just a Ricky Schroeder fan club sticker. And that was it. Oh, so like the and, logo of the fan club. And you write him letters and somebody writes back on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> and you get a poster or did you have to buy that No, separately? we bought the poster ourselves. Did you have to pay to be in the Ricky Schroeder no, fan club? No, no payment for the Ricky okay, Schroeder fan thank club. Thank goodness for that. How ridiculous would it be if you had to pay to be in a fan club so that you could write write fan letters to a person. <laughs> well, so I would not have anticipated that the way this conversation was going to begin was one, talking about Ricky Schroeder in the first place, but two, talking about your storied history in the Ricky Schroeder fan club. So you're growing <laughs> up in, I guess this, this would be the 80s in yeah. San Fernando Valley into the 90s, I would assume. Yeah. And you're part of the Ricky Schroeder fan club and you're living in the Valley, which at that time on TV, they act like everyone talked like this in the Valley, like, 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 which you don't talk like. So no, was it, it wasn't really, it's life? not really quite that bad. I think that was more of a song than it was reality. So then what did you? 
your life look like growing up in Calabasas, California? Like, what kind of kid were you? I grew up in a family that um, we were very inactive. We went a lot of places, but we went by plane and we sat and watched other people on stage and we watched other people on TV and we watched other people living their best lives and doing really cool things and we sat and ate while we watched. So my whole family is obese and I was also. Most of my life consisted of watching other people do stuff while we ate. So vicarious lifestyle. Vicarious lifestyle. Which is, which is how I think we could probably describe not maybe a huge amount of American life but a fair amount of American families. I think that's what people do. They live vicariously through athletes, TV shows, whatever else. So that is no big surprise. It's funny on this show I feel like most people I talk to either they grew up in an outdoor family from like youth or like you're probably about to tell us they did not experience that as a kid and then in adulthood or teen years or something discovered something that kind of triggered everything else and then a bunch of dominoes fell down from there yeah so let's jump ahead for you what was your introduction how did you go from obese vicarious kid to the big outdoor mama that you are now calabasas is a lot of fad diets so i had up and downs my whole life in my early 20s i was in the 270s you know when i got married i think i was probably closer to one 50, but in between that is is up and down and up and down. And that's, I think that comes with that lifestyle. Once I met my kids... do you think for you it was completely lifestyle-based or do you think there was any sort of genetic component or anything like that? Well, there's definitely a genetic component. Like I've had to learn, if I sit and I sit down to eat with somebody, just because you can eat something doesn't mean I get to eat it too. My body needs a lot less calories than yours to do the exact same thing. So if I'm eating a whole bunch more than I need required for my physical activity, then it's going to store on as fat. It used to be that if I sat down and everybody got a plate of food and everybody ate their plate of food, I wanted to eat my plate of food too. Whereas I've had to learn that you have a much faster metabolism than I do. So I don't have to eat because you're eating. I need to eat what I need to eat. So I've, I've learned uh, from a calorie standpoint, I don't count calories at all. Just knowing the difference between eating because I feel like it and eating because I actually need calories. It's interesting too, the way metabolisms work, because I think there's this concept that if you have a fast metabolism like I do, where you eat ridiculous quantities of food and then burn them off very quickly, that that's a positive but your metabolism might actually be way more efficient if you need fewer calories to well, generate is, the same power. Mine is way more efficient. I would love an in, an insufficient one would be much better for me. I will trade you any time. I don't know. It's pretty it's pretty expensive and difficult to eat all the time. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't want to bemoan that. So yeah, let's continue on with your story. So as you said, you grew up kind of living a vicarious life and a family that became obese. And then at some point, that's all going to change. You went through a variety of fad diets, but I suspect the solution was not there. When I got pregnant with my son, I was probably in the 150s and I delivered him in the 270s. It was an excuse for me. It was like, oh, it's pregnancy weight. It's pregnancy weight. It's pregnancy weight. And then I had the baby and it was still there. And so that really made it just fat. In between my two kids, um, I didn't take the weight off. I went back right up into the, like, the 270s when I gave birth to my daughter. As I started to know them as people, I, I realized just how much my mom missed and how much everybody in my family misses by dying so young with diabetes and heart disease and cancer, you know, and all of them have such a, a weight component to them that I I just wanted something different for my kids. When they were babies, when they were little, um, I was brewing beer. I'm a part owner of Ritual Brewing in Redlands. Brewing beer and drinking beer and beer... <laughs> 
tastings and stewarding at competitions. Like that was my life. That's what I did for fun. And I guess I decided I wanted to be around to raise my kids. And so when Kaylee was a baby, my second one was a baby, I quit brewing beer and I, I started going to this Zumba class that was up here on the mountain with a girl named Lorraine. You know, the weight started to come down to where I could do some hiking. And then I started hiking out to Heart Rock. I mean, now when I look at it, I laugh. Altogether, it's probably less than two miles. But that was significant for me when I first started getting moving. Once I had taken off enough weight that I could, I started kickboxing. And then I started going to Kenpo Studio and doing like martial art kickboxing. I, I had to change what I did for fun because that was what I was doing was killing me. Kaylee was probably two or three, my daughter, when we had some friends that took us to Joshua Tree. Uh, we were camping with them and and I put on this girl Crystal's harness and shoes. And from the minute I touched that rock, life has never been the same. Like from the very first day climbing, my first climb was in Joshua Tree. I was never putting weight back on after that. I was never, that, that was the beginning of my, of my happy life, I think. And how long ago was that, that trip to Joshua Tree? Probably 12 years ago. Okay, so we're talking 2011-ish, somewhere yeah. around there. So you work for this brewery, or you co-own, I, yeah, I co-own. Like this, this brewery, mm-hmm. uh, but you eventually make this decision proactively yourself that you want to be a healthier, more active person. And so Zumba, I get, that's a thing that you see advertised. It's a thing that you can drive to a place and you can find and, and some of the other stuff. But it sounds like the way the climbing came along is you met a person or you were friends with a person who were friends with a person who invited you out. Yeah. Prior to that, had you had any sort of cursory knowledge or any sort of interest in climbing at all? I, I knew nothing about it. No. Nope. Because the other thing growing up in Calabasas, that puts you pretty close to Stony Point, which is the premier urban rock climbing area I had never even heard of rock climbing when I lived there. But remember, I had 10 years in San Diego in between having a family. So I don't know how much rock climbing was happening then or not. But it sounds like you probably were not one of those kids heading down to Stony Point. Or if you were, you were one of those kids heading down to Stony Point at night to secretly drink beer and leave trash and (laughs) spray graffiti on all the rocks. Yeah, no, we didn't have to go that far. I know, graffiti's never been my jam. A friend of a friend or a friend takes you out to Joshua Tree. You try climbing for the first time and you really like it. And then this kind of changes your whole life. So let's talk a little bit about that trip, if you even remember it. Oh, I remember. Where did you stay? Was this a multiple day thing? Do you remember what you were climbing on? Was it all top rope? Like, what was your introduction to climbing like there? It was, we camped out there and I don't remember where we camped. My first climb called Headstone. There is that a climb? Is that, I'm trying There's like a bunch of scrambling to get up to it. Yeah, and then 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 it's this big boulder that's kind of perched on the mm -hmm. side of something. So you were probably staying at Ryan Campground then. Was it right next to your campground? That's exactly where I was. Yeah, That's exactly where I was. I know the rock you're talking about because, did you top rope it? I top roped it. Okay, because to, I mean, I would assume you're first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't leading. (laughs) Because that's one of those that would be a really intimidating lead because it's right along the arete of that boulder and then it's just a big drop, big drop underneath it. Yeah, so that was your first climb, was on Headstone? That was, was my first one. Interesting. So what was that like for you? The whole first couple of years of climbing, I thought I was a much better climber than I am because the guys that I was climbing with, we call it active belaying now, they pulled me up rocks. They pulled me up oh. everything. <laughs> I thought I was a much better climber than right, I was right. because they kept that rope really tight mm-hmm. and... <laughs> 
<laughs> when someone actually left any sort of slack in the rope at all, I realized I was not climbing what I thought I was. Yeah, it's funny how that works out. I remember belaying some random stranger at Stony Point one time, and he told me, so I want you to give me a really loose belay. And by that, he meant, I want you to keep me as tight as humanly possible. And so as soon as he was on the face, he would just go, tension, 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 tension. And I would have to pull so hard to get to the point where this random stranger I just met would stop begging for attention that it was actually lifting me off the ground. (sighs) And every time he'd make a move, he'd call for that tension. So yeah, with top roping, if you're keeping somebody too tight, you're pulling them up the rock. They they pulled me up all sorts of stuff. Not long after that, a bird of fire and Joshua Tree and some climbs that going back, having a real belay versus someone, you know, pulling me up climbs with them. The, the learning curve was steeper than I thought it was in the beginning. But the important thing is that you're enjoying it and I that it's getting you outside. Loved it. So what was it about it? Since so you said you tried Zumba and other things before, but apparently rock climbing really clicked with you. So what was it about it? Do you know? Yeah, being outside, being away from people and there's just kind of an energy in Joshua Tree that you just you just feel like at peace even just sitting there camping and then touching the rock and I don't know I guess being a part of something that wasn't man-made was just something I'd never done that was my favorite thing about it being outside and being able to be with a group of friends not just sitting and at this point are you still struggling with your weight or has it kind of come under control at this point no it's under control now um i got worried i broke my knee last year was down for a long time and then as soon as i got moving again like a month later i dislocated it the the muscles weren't strong enough from it being down so long it didn't take much to dislocate it other than a month i was down for almost a year and my biggest fear in that was like oh my god i've made this whole new life that's so active and outdoors i i don't want to be 300 pounds again one other time in my life i went into like the 170s which is pretty up for me but it wasn't 270 my son was doing a medical treatment in dallas and um we were living in dallas for a summer and in just one summer um, i went to dallas weighing in like the low 130s and came home in the 170s and that was just over a summer i realized how easily that could happen again when i'm not on my routine and so i just was careful this time instead of like i don't i don't count calories i don't i don't think calories in calories out works i think your body is designed to survive and i have definitely found with all the years of dieting that when you eat less calories you gain weight easier and so it was hard mentally not to go back to starving myself because I wasn't being active and just sticking to whole foods, real foods, not a bunch of um, processed box stuff. And turns out when you actually eat real food, your body actually tells you to stop eating it when you're full. Whereas, you know, you can eat Pop-Tarts all day and never get the message that you're full. I think it's really unfortunate as a culture that we went through this whole calorie counting phase because it's such just an incorrect approach. Your body needs calories to function. A calorie is the ability to convert something into energy. So the idea that less of that would be beneficial to a person is ludicrous when it really is about the components of what you're eating that are what are impacting people. Well, and the thing that I think is a bummer is logically, it makes sense that if you burn more calories than you eat, you lose weight. And that is what the premise has been. If you exercise more, you can eat more calories. If you, our bodies are designed to survive and our bodies did not know that we would have grocery stores and refrigerators. And so 
when you are active and you're burning calories, but you're eating less than your body needs, your body thinks that, uh oh, here comes a harsh winter and there's no food left. And so your body stops burning fat and it starts burning muscle. The exact thing that speeds your metabolism up that makes you be able to eat more is the muscle. And your body will burn that away because it, it wants to save whatever fat you have left because it needs to feed your organs and you know it doesn't know how long your hard winter is gonna be. Um, your body will go into starvation mode and into a survival mode that it's really hard when people get down to that last 10 or 15 pounds that they can't seem to get rid of. It's really hard to convince somebody it's because you're not eating enough. Your body is never going to get rid of that last bit. Like that's what's keeping it alive as, as far as I know is right when you start to eat more you will gain a little bit of weight, but the only way to ever get the weight off, off, like, you know, my, I get pretty skinny now is because I eat. If I don't eat and I, or I barely eat, you know, try to keep to that 800 to 1200 calories a day, I can get down to um, in about the 150s. But for me to get down to, um, I like myself in the 120s to the low 130s, for me to get down that low, I have to be eating. I can't, my body won't go that low if I'm not eating enough calories. Yeah, I gotta imagine too, when you drop into starvation mode and you're denying yourself the calories that your body needs to function, your body ceases to function as effectively. Yeah. So you don't have the energy to do the things that you would do that would help you maintain your weight or your health or what, however you wanna look at that. Yeah. What ended up ultimately being the solution for you? Was it as simple as eat? quality, healthy food and maintain a certain level of activity. I took all of the weight off the first, like just to get the weight off the first time was Atkins. I ate nothing healthy. It was just a bunch of meat and a bunch of cheese. And no breads and or carbohydrates. No breads, right? no carbs. Now we've switched to a keto where you're adding in some fruit and some vegetables. But back in my day of it, it was Atkins and it was fruits and vegetables were bad too because you know if you're only getting 20 carbs a day I wasn't wasting six of them on a vegetable like I was gonna save those carbs so um, it was very unhealthy but I took the weight off I had kept it off for a while I can't say I felt great but at that point I didn't care I just wanted to not be overweight and so um, being unhealthy I was skinny fat man I was I was unhealthy but but I looked thin. Then I got sick. This January 16th that's coming up, we're in October now. Yeah, 2023. Okay, so January of 2024 will be my 11 years cancer-free. Um, I got colon cancer, and if you look at the cancer risk, eating a lot of red meat and eating, it was exactly what I was eating is kind of the recipe for it. And cancer does run in my family. So I think some people can probably eat a bunch of meat and be fine, but it didn't work well for me. The years I had eaten just meat, I think took a toll on my body also. I had colon cancer, six months of chemo. It was two weeks on and one week off. It really, really takes a number on your body, um, chemo does. And people will say like, oh, it's not the cancer that killed so-and-so, it was the chemo. Well, no shit, look how many more years you got out of this. The thing that I just couldn't get to heal that just wasn't going well was my liver. Um, my AST, my ALT kept getting too high and, and in the liver, like it's called fatty liver, approaching cirrhosis. And every time it got too high before it would get to cirrhosis, I would go down to 800 calories a day and no animal products. And it would usually take a couple months and then the numbers would come back down. I started the same cycle. It would slowly creep up and slowly creep up. 
it kind of looked like it was going to be my liver would would be the thing that finally took me out. And yes, that would have been from chemo, but I also would have got three more years with my kids. Um, I had some girlfriends that were amazing. I called them my six pack girls, or my Girls Gone Wild crew. There was six of us. <laughs> the way Girls Gone Wild happened, there's inflatables on the lake at Lake Gregory. Yeah, and we'll say in your case, I'm sure gar- Girls Gone Wild means as in going outdoors together to do wild things, yep. not as in pulling your shirt up on video so that some gross guy can sell videotapes in the 90s. You are exactly right. (laughs) Right. It was, we were climbing these inflatables on on Lake Gregory and there was this one that you would climb up and it hooked, it was like an overhang and and nobody could get across and get like nobody could get to the top over the top of it where the last handle was we were climbing out at cliffhanger one day and it was just really hot so we came in we went to the lake our friend audra actually threw a heel hook and made it and made it over the top of that thing and that's the only person we've ever seen do it so we all screamed and cheered and we were like first ascent you have to name it and so she named it the girls gone wild uh route so that is how GGW happened. Um, those girls became, I mean, they're my family. And when I was sick, they would carry all my gear and, and you know, I could maybe get it, sometimes climb a route or two and just be wiped out and, and they'd carry all my stuff. And some months I would be on fire and strong and they just kind of kept me along and took care of me, whether it was a strong day or a bad day. Again, I felt like all of that was living on borrowed time. I was still just thankful to be alive having all those experiences, but it made me motivated to do things like I, like I climbed a glacier, I did the Palisades Glacier, you know, with ice axes and crampons and all of these things that, that you see pictures of or, or like it's in a National Geographic or it's on the wall in some doctor's office in the lobby and you see this great mountain and I was like, I want to do all the things, like all of these things that I've looked at in awe, I want to do those things. So I did, I climbed the Palisades Glacier, was my first 14er. And this is the glacier in the Sierra Nevada? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, we went up U-Notch because neither of us knew how to set ice gear. So we had to hike up instead of go up Swissarette, which would be the ice climbing route. It, it was getting closer and closer together that I had to keep going down to low calories, no animal products. And so... Just for giggles, I thought, what if this time I do different? And what if I add my calories back so that I'm not, I mean, 800 calories a day being active is really hard to function on. Yeah, that is not a lot. That is nothing. And so I thought, well, maybe if I um, start eating again, like eating calories again and not staying at 800 calories, but I don't add any animal products back, let's see if that gives me more time in between. And so it was about three years after I had been done with chemo. I was still throwing up at least, I would say at least every other day. Every time I ate, I felt sick to my stomach. It just was kind of part of the cost of being alive. And I added back in calories, but I stayed completely plant-based. After two months, we did my blood work to see, you know, was it was it working? Was it Were they staying lower? Was, was it creeping back up? And my blood work for like the first time ever was in low, like like the low range of normal. Sorry, he won't bark now. (laughs) Even eating full calories, my numbers had gone down, not up. So 
I continued plant-based and at the six month mark, we did blood work again and I was in the low range of normal for my liver function. It looked like for me, getting rid of animal products that are just hard to digest was what made it so that my liver could handle the load that it's on forever. I'll be on different medications and stuff. And so I, I have full liver function now. So you were able to save your liver. You didn't have to replace it. Yep. Completely saved it. So I stayed for three years completely 100% plant-based. A couple years ago, I started trying to add back in just small amounts of things. Um, I have found that I can eat small amounts of cheese and I can eat egg, but even fish will screw me up. When I do eat animal products, like the bottom of my legs swell, I get edema fluid. Like you can see pretty quickly that my liver isn't doing what it's supposed to. I eat some cheese, I eat some egg, um, but most of my stuff is still plant-based. When I'm out of the house, I don't stress about finding somewhere. It's easy to find something to eat when you're eating cheese. So um, it's made life much easier. But at home, when I'm cooking, I cook plant-based here. If I'm doing the math correctly, basically once you get this diagnosis, this is probably a year or so after that Joshua tree trip, Mm -hmm. which is around the time you're starting to experiment more with all these different activities. And also your children are still fairly young at the time. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about that diagnosis, how that came along, and then how that impacted everything. So like you've, you've undertaken this life change and you've changed your life in a lot of ways. And now all of a sudden this new thing is coming in to, to endanger that. Yeah. Have this brand new life. And my now ex-husband was climbing also. We had shifted to this Instead of you know brewing beer, John wasn't John uh, wasn't drinking. He didn't. He already didn't drink. He stopped drinking. Um, that's a whole different story. But he stopped drinking um, prior to that. Yeah, we started doing everything outside with that other couple. That the Sakaguchis were the balls. They're the Sakaguchis. So we were the ball sacks. <laughs> <laughs> you saw where that was going, huh? Yeah. So we did ball sack holidays and ball sack everything. Um, and they had a son same age as my son and a daughter the same age as my daughter so the kids started being raised outside camping and getting on little harnesses and and screwing around on the rocks and yeah it was it was like I finally got this this great new outdoor life and I I had um when my son was just a huge baby and a hard hard delivery and so my my bladder and my uterus had prolapsed and were kind of sitting down on my bowel So until I had my second kid, I kind of had to just leave everything where it was. But once I didn't need my uterus anymore and my daughter was big enough that, you know, she could walk and understand things, you know, an easier time to have surgery. I went into Loma Linda to have, they removed my uterus and they put my bladder up in like a little hammock called the bladder sling. But the area that it had been sitting so long against my bowel, it was still pinched. And so like it kind of scarred down that way. And so I was still going to keep having a problem going to the bathroom. And so they had to section out a tiny piece of it. They took a little piece of my colon out where it was pinched and that just happened to be where the cancer was. It was completely luck. It was not what we were looking for. And it's the only reason that we caught it that early. Oh, so it wasn't because of symptoms or anything you were experiencing. Nope. It was this completely stupid luck based moment. Completely stupid luck based. You went in thinking like, oh, this annoying ass issue I've been having. Fine. We'll finally address it. Mm -hmm. And then it fixes 
or, or at least yeah. makes you aware of a much worse problem. Yes. That is insane. So anytime they remove a piece of your body, they send it to the lab to get it analyzed. Mm-hmm. It just, they always do to make sure the cells are fine. It was just procedure for them to send it to the lab and it came back malignant. That, that was a doozy. And it had not spread? It no. was literally only in that part of the colon? Yep. That is amazing. Yep. Colon cancer is a doozy. Um, that's a hard cancer to, to beat. Yeah, and also the life expectancy is very low. Very low, because by the time you have symptoms, it's too late. I just got really, really lucky. And I lost a grandma to colon cancer. It was complete luck that we got it that day. And so they thought that they had clear edges and that 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 was going to be it. And we were watching it. Um, We did a bunch of blood work and and stuff for the whole year. A year later, I went in for for them to do a scope again and look. Um, They had a concerning area that they removed, and it turned out that it was malignant. I still, at that point, had control of everything. Like, they hadn't taken enough of my colon. It didn't need a colostomy bag or anything. But they weren't sure when they found that piece if that meant that we were going to have to take out the whole thing. And is that why you ended up on chemo? That's why we did chemo. So I started chemo a year after my diagnosis. So back then, Zalota was... The, that's the chemo that I used. And this that is I 2012, on. 2013, somewhere around there, Let's about see, a decade ago, a little more maybe. Yep. So Zalota is the chemo that I used. And the diagnosis that I had, there's half the doctors, half the oncologists say, yes, do chemo. And the other half were saying, no, don't do chemo. They were testing to see whether or not Zalota made a difference at that stage. And so it was kind of crazy to go through something that kicks your ass so bad you're like wait well half the people say I don't need this I felt like if I didn't beat it I wanted my kids to know that their mom did everything that she could to try to spend more days with them and to me that meant chemo so I don't know how the outcome would have been I chose you know to do the chemo my marriage sucked I I was unhappy in my marriage for quite a while before that yeah and I'm sure chemotherapy and cancer diagnosis and all these things do not help well I decided when I learned that I had to start chemo, I decided I did not want to die John Ball's wife. And so I I kicked him out. And I, you know, obviously that wasn't what the problem was. There was many problems. It was kind of what was still keeping me with him. And he said, you know, you can't leave and do chemo. And I said, well, my friends all think you're taking care of me. And so, yeah, you need to get out so that people know that you're not helping me with anything, you know? And that's when I started forming some close girl friendships. I had, I told you, the Sakaguchis who got me into climbing. We had already known, like through that year, I was already, it wasn't a secret to him that things were not going well. And he's a great man now. He's a great dad now. And he's he's worked so hard in the decade we've been apart to become a better person and not be the man he was raised to be. He was raised by a horrible family with horrible men that believed if men apologize well enough, women will stay through anything. And so I don't want to throw him under the table now because 10 years later, um, he's a very good friend of mine. And so was my kid's stepmom. Without getting into the whys, things were not going well in our marriage. And so when I first found out that I had cancer, but before knowing that I had to do chemo, it was like this wake-up call. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to start going to school for massage therapy. You have one year to fix what's wrong with us. You know, if you can't get this under control, then, you know, I'm out. But I can't afford the house and the kids by myself if I don't have a second job. So the plan was that I was going to, by the time I finished massage school, it was, we were going to have a good hard look at our marriage and decide if 
we were staying together. I went to school one night. It was three days after we had broken up. You know, we were still in the same house and I went to school and the I couldn't sit through school like my I had these two babies at home sleeping and I'm my marriage is falling apart and I couldn't concentrate. I left school and I came home like within an hour of even being at class. It's a four hour, it was four hours at night. And I came home and Crystal, the one whose family got us into climbing, was on the couch with my husband. And so I knew I had this feeling. Um, there were a lot of signs that John was cheating on me, but he was always where he was supposed to be. Like I never caught him in any big thing, but there was a lot of signs that were there. And three days after I left him, I came home and found out why it was so easy to get away with. He was always where he was supposed to be. He was always with the family that we did all of our stuff with, our kids' best friends. So John and Crystal were together right after that. So um, I really had to reach and, and find, I guess, a, a, a new family. Not my, my family's not, Most of my family's not alive. I needed, um, I don't know, I guess the same way that I had changed what I did with my life, like not being, sitting and watching other people live their life and being overweight. I just had to make a decision then that if I didn't like the path my life was on, I had to change it. And so obviously finding John with Crystal, <laughs> I told him to get out of the house. <laughs> so he was gone and um, I had a, just a handful of friends that, you know, most of my friends were down the, down the mountain. We, up here in the mountains, it's hard. And so I met some girls at a, like a cancer support group. I went one time to this one at Loma Linda. It kind of wasn't for me. It was, I completely, completely understand. And, and everybody's at a different stage when, when, you know, when you join Club Cancer. But there was a lot of women there that were dying from cancer. And there was a handful of us that were living with cancer. And it's all how you look at it, you know? I wasn't ready for the gloom and and I had to put on a happy face for my kids. Um, I, I didn't, they were too young. They were three and six. I didn't want them to I, even hear the cancer word. The few other girls that I really liked, that I liked kind of their attitude and where they were at, pulled aside and after that first one, we started, um, we called ourselves Club Cancer. Me and four other women, there were five of us, started being each other's support. One person is, is sick when four others are healthy, and then it's someone else's turn to be sick, and then someone else has a treatment. So we just, between the five of us, we all would pool all of our medical bills and split them in five, anything related to cancer. And whoever's turn it was to be the sick one, whoever was treating or whatever was happening, everybody else made meals and played with each other's kids. And I, I just, I found like this new, family. So I decided that instead of being part of a family that, you know, eats ourselves to death and, and everybody's diabetic and they're eating more pie and injecting more insulin because it's Thanksgiving, you know, I, I decided to join this family of women that were just, we were too stubborn to die. And that involved being fit and, and not letting, I don't know, throwing up and being sick be an excuse to not live that day. Between finding climbing and realizing that, I mean, the doctors are not, it's not the doctors they get to tell you what you can and can't do, that it's you. And and I don't mean that I don't listen to my doctors, but people can set all sorts of limits on you and people do that throughout your whole life. And when you stop 
letting someone else tell you what your body's capable of and you start telling your body what it's capable of, uh, it's pretty powerful. So this is a hell of a story. Your whole life you've had this issue with your weight, dealing with that. You find solutions to deal with that. You find this new lifestyle that's working out for you. Then, in what sounds like a pretty short period of time, you get hit with facing your own mortality, dealing with chemotherapy, which I'm sure was an experience that made you terribly sick and made it difficult to do everything else, dealing with a collapsing marriage, a divorce, a betrayal by a friend, and then having to find a way through that all. And those are the sort of things that can destroy a person. But you seem to have found a solution to pull you out of that. It, it's it's kind of that sort of situation where you you could have either just collapsed underneath it or you come out a stronger person and there's no other option, right? No, Is that kind of how it felt? That's exactly. That's exactly. It. There wasn't there wasn't another option and what made that exist was Hunter and Kaylee. I had these two kids that were just delightful little people and it was my job to take care of them. If something happened to me today, my kids have a great dad and a great stepmom. And I'm not going to say it would be okay to lose their mom. I don't mean that at all. They would be okay. Back then, John was a shitty man and he was a shitty dad and he was not capable of, like, that man could not have raised my kids this way. So there wasn't another option. You know, years later, I'm like, hey, if you could have been, why couldn't you have been good back then? I could have given up sooner. No, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> but but the everything about it is I brought these little lives into the world and and dying just wasn't an option. You know, you hear stories all the time, right? Where you've got, say, a person with no children who's super capable in some sort of terrible situation and that person dies. Meanwhile, someone completely ill-prepared under the same situation has a child, children, who they feel like they have to stay alive to parent. And that person somehow survives in this scenario that they shouldn't survive in. Meanwhile, a person who you think would survive dies in that situation. Do you sincerely think the primary motivator for you was your children? Do you think without your children that maybe the scenario would have turned out differently? Oh, definitely. I, that My primary motivator is was definitely my children. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, at first you're like, okay, six months. And so you, you get through the first month of chemo and you're like, okay, I've done an entire month. I've got five left, but I've already done a month so I can do this. And then you hit this two month mark and you're like, okay, of the amount of time I have left, I've already done half of that, you know, two months out of, and there's only four left. And you sit there and you play these games in your head where you're like, okay, now I'm at three months. I'm halfway through. Of course I can do this. I've already made it halfway. And then when you hit the six month mark and you're done, it's like, like you, you think it's going to be like, I don't know, like you ran through the end of the race and, you know, split the ribbon, but it doesn't, it doesn't go like that. Like now they stop giving you chemo, but your body doesn't just be like, oh, I feel good then. Everything was wrecked. My liver, even still, um, I can't even have a drink now. Even if I, if I have a drink, I don't feel good even while drinking. So the whole fun of drinking goes away when it doesn't even feel good while you drink it. The next day, I'm. It's like feels like I drank a bottle of tequila back in my twenties. If I have a drink, eating meat doesn't go well for me. I guess I thought I'd, it would be six months and then I'd get my life back. Here I am, three years later, still throwing up. I'm like, wait a minute. But again, there were these two little people that I had no other option. I needed to be around for. 
my life on paper sounds really, really hard. Like it sounds like, oh my God, you've been through so much. I have the easiest and the best life. And it, it doesn't sound like it by definition, but I had I not had that, if I never went through having cancer, I always would have been a single mom with two jobs so that my kids could play their sports or you know do whatever and to take care of the house. I would have always had to have two jobs for the rest of you know raising kids. But when I realized that my days were looking numbered and that my liver wasn't doing well and it didn't it wasn't going well for me, I, I realized that I might not be around to raise them. And, you know, I had a big life insurance policy that was that would go to my ex-husband so he'd have money for the kids. Back then, he didn't he didn't make a big deal at Christmas and he didn't buy birthday presents. I put his name on everything. Everything we did was from me and dad. So I wanted to put a significant amount of money away that my sister could control because she believed in birthday parties and Christmas and traveling and all of those things. And so I wanted enough money that my sister could continue to do the things that I wouldn't be alive to do for them. I went full time um, on my second job. You know, my first job was was still progressive, but the weeks I didn't have my kids, I worked six days of working till midnight doing massaging. Um, I worked a second full-time job and put away like a really significant amount of money in three years. I kept my progressive salary as the money we spent and every bit of money that I made from job number two, every bit of it I put away. And I set like this kind of crazy financial goal, got an investment planner from New York Life, a guy named Andrew McReynolds, and we broke down, this is what you want for your kids. Okay, this is how much you have in their accounts now. This is how much you need to make. So if we say three years, that means you know, divided by three is this much, divided by, you know, to make it one year, divided by 12, that means every month you have to make this much, which means every week you have to make this much. And I, I didn't sleep until I made what I had to every single week. One of the best people in my entire world came into my life because of that. I hired a nanny to move in with me. It was so hard doing chemo and raising kids and working a second job. And hurling all the time. So I, um, I had a nanny move in with us. We call her Jackie Poppins. Her name is Jackie. <laughs> she took all the things that would have wrecked my kids through chemo and she made them not notice them and made them not stand out. Like I was sitting on the couch with my ankles were really swollen one day and it was, it was hard to even move my feet. And I was on the couch and my daughter is saying, mommy, please come do bath time. Please do my bath. And I, I just couldn't, I was so, I was in so much pain and I was so sick. And I said, oh, please let Jackie do it. And Kaylee's crying, come on, please. And, and I just was trying to find that last ounce to stand up and go sit in the bathroom with her. And then I, I hear the Frozen song that let it, I'm not going to sing on this. That <laughs> let it good, go. That's good because I don't have the finances to fight Disney's copyright. <laughs> they wouldn't even recognize it was the same song. You know, I start hearing the, the Frozen song is being sung from upstairs in the kids' bathroom. And Kaylee goes running up there. And then Jackie sends me this little video. She had taken shaving cream and just covered the entire tub and shower and everything in shaving cream and turned it into an ice castle. <laughs> and so they were playing ice castle and she was videoing Kaylee going, yes, I have Elsa powers and just playing with us. With, and on the hardest days that I felt like I just couldn't push through and fake it anymore, 
out came Jackie to make them laugh and not realize that I wasn't doing the mom thing. Like she was, she just made everything, all the responsibilities Jackie made fun. And to this day, she is like, if I get into a bind, if I, if my car breaks down, if my battery's dead, uh, it's kind of funny. My first call is always Jackie. My second one is to the kid's dad and stepmom. So it's funny the way that that turned out. I'm going to sound like a terrible mom, but I'm actually a great mom. So I'm going to say it anyways. I have every other week, the kids have another mom who absolutely loves them as much as I do. They have a dad that is, John's fantastic. He's worked really hard to be the man he's turned into and he's he's a great dad. And every other week I get to, I can go out of cell range and I could go up to the Sierra and we can go canyoneering or I can go mountaineering. As a full-time mom, when John and I were still married, I, I always rushed home from work and, and I always wanted to spend every single second that wasn't working I wanted to spend with my kids. And once that got taken away and I had split custody and I didn't have the option to have them all the time, I had to figure out what I wanted to do for me. And there was that climbing thing I loved and just I loved the being outside and I didn't get them anyways. You know, they, even if it wasn't finding a sitter, they were with their dad. And now to this day, every other week, there's nothing that like I don't I don't cancel out on them for anything like I come I, I do I like to do all my own carpooling and the driving and I pick them up from school and um, and I get to be a full time mom and then I have this week next to catch up on work because you know I'm I'm leaving on school time sleeping if I want and climb and canyoneer and mountaineer I'm not gonna suggest that you have children thinking divorce would make it better but my kids have three parents now that by the time we get them back on our Mondays, you know, we switch every other Monday, we can't wait to get the kids back. Like, I'm never sick of my kids. I never want, oh, if I just had this break, if I only had someone to watch them, like, like it's quite the opposite. It's like, I can't wait to see them again because I have all of the time to be myself too. Where it seems like it's this horrible thing, I put all of this money away in three years and then I didn't die. Instead of being a single mom, had I never had to do chemo, I would have been a single mom with two jobs that would have had kid weeks, and then I would have had weeks that I worked my second job and my first job, and that would have been my life. But because I already put away everything I needed to for their future and didn't die, my future is set now too. It's all bonus time. Financially, my kids are set. My retirement is set. Um, I don't have to put anything else away. All I, all we do now is make memories. And that is a really different position to be in than when you spend this whole time trying to make it in life. It's like, no, I already spent those three years with my financial advisor wrapping up everything I had to. All I do now is have fun. And I work and I have a good job and a good boss that lets me have the freedoms to do this. I feel like had I never gotten sick, God, one, I don't even know if I did, didn't have to do chemo when I ever would have really left John. It was like this wake up to like, like no, you, you got a little bit of life left. You better, go, you better go do this right. I don't know, I guess I feel like I got this smack in the face to figure out what I really wanted out of my life. And then this, this feeling of you might not have that much time to do it, get my life to where I wanted it to be. And then I didn't die. So now I just get to live this life that's climbing and canyoning and my daughter does competitive cheer and god I would have missed that I love watching her perform and I 
I'm not going to ever say that, you know, having cancer was a good thing, but it set my life into into it like a trajectory that is nothing like it used to be. Like even things like school. Their dad uh, was for, is former military. He was a Marine. So you went to school because you were supposed to. You know, like th- those are the rules and that's what you do. Those years that I was still throwing up, you know, my days looked numbered. So I started taking the kids out of the country once a year. They've been to seven countries when they were, you know, when they were little, when I would have normally waited until they were older to do stuff. We started missing school because it's much cheaper to travel. And like the kids wanted to do a Disney cruise really bad. I couldn't afford a Disney cruise during normal people travel time. But if you go on a Disney cruise during the um, school year, it's really cheap because nobody's doing it. So I told the kids, you know, I didn't I didn't have more money, so we had to figure out how we were going to pay for it. So we turned off cable, and that was $89 a month, and we put $89 a month into the, the Disney jar. Then we stained our own fence this one year, and that saved us $800 that we put into the Disney jar. Each morning that the kids would pack their own lunch and put a fruit and a vegetable in it, and me not have to... St- give them money to go buy a hot lunch at school. Whenever somebody made their own lunch, we put money in the travel jar. And I wanted them to learn that instead of them chasing the dollar and always trying to make more so they can do more things, I wanted them to prioritize. We don't go out to eat. My friends say all the time, like, how do you travel so much? How can you afford that? And I'm like, well, I don't go to sushi with you once a week. (laughs) If you took your sushi money and you put it in a jar, you could go on a Disney cruise. So, and for me, it was $5 every time I didn't go to Starbucks. Every day I skipped Starbucks, I put $5 in the jar and we we did our Disney cruise. What, what's made my life amazing now was the catalyst was the, the days being numbered. Like even taking the kids out of school in the middle of the school year, th- the schools didn't get mad because it was like, you know, here my eyebrows fell out. Like it was clear that I was sick. <laughs> Nobody thought that I looked healthy. So it was like, oh, these poor kids, you know, losing their mom. So everybody, we, we got the, like the cancer pass. Like I could take them out of school. I could skip work and work funny hours and not go into an office ever. And all of these things that I got to do because it was like the end of my life. There isn't a day you wake up and someone's like, well, you didn't die, so start coming back into an office, you know? <laughs> like, there isn't a magic day that you go, okay, now you've done this for too long. It just, it set us up into a lifestyle that we, the kids and I called it doing nothing on credit. If we want to play hooky, we get stuff done first, and then we play hooky. So if I want to play hooky today and climb, I stayed, I worked until 11 last night. I got all my work done. I'm not going to work tonight and catch up. We always, we did nothing on credit, so... They got homework done before we took vacations. They always, we did it towards the end of the school year and they'd spend the whole school year making sure they turned everything in as soon as they could because they wanted to be ahead so we could go on this cruise. He never had to fight with the kids to get homework done because they knew if they didn't get it done, we couldn't take a vacation during the school year. It's interesting, you were teaching them budgeting. You were teaching them how to manage the resources they do have instead of the resources they don't have. And then also you were teaching them goal setting. Like if you're working (laughs) towards a goal, it's easier to work. If you're working just because that's what you're supposed to do, it's a lot harder to force yourself to work. But if there's a goal up there that you know you will be rewarded for, then it it makes it a lot easier to do that work. No, definitely. From what I'm hearing so far, is there kind of like three big seminal points in your life? There's that first one where you realize, hey, I want to get fit. 
I want to take control of my eating and I want to shift the style of life I have. Then there is your diagnosis and your mortality and everything you had to do to deal with that. And then there was that gray moment where you realize this isn't going to take me out. There's still more time. And so then you have to decide, okay, well, if I am going to live longer, what's the rest of my life look like? Which is pretty much where we are now, which is what you were talking about where you were saying, and so now you can do this and now you can do that. So let's let's talk about that third phase a little bit because that's where you live in life now. But yeah, let's shift now a little bit into all of the activities you now, once you are able to get healthier again and once you're able to start focusing on your own life and not just survival and keeping your kids surviving also. Yeah. Uh, but once you're able to kind of start focusing on a richer life again. Let's talk about that. So we know that there are all these climbing activities you were doing prior to that, but I also know that you're a canyoneer and other things. What was the progression into those activities as you're coming out of chemo? Is this all things that happen after chemo or these things that happen simultaneously? No, all after. Chemo was six months. In those three years of still kind of being sick, this all simultaneously started to develop. I had to make the shift from... I don't know, from the minute that my kids were born, that's what I was, I was a mom and everything was around them. One of the things I love the most about my mom, no matter what, she was always there for my sister and I. Everything in her world revolved around Dean and I being happy. And I, I prided myself in being that same mom, but all of a sudden I don't have kids. Like I'm not s- sick and dying. Now I'm, I'm alive, but every other week I don't have kids. I had to learn how, like who I was and not just the example I was trying to set for my kids, not just don't die because you have to raise your kids, but it's like, okay, this stuff is, you, you got this all down. What it, like, I didn't really know who I was. I didn't know what made me happy and what I liked anymore. Um, I kind of went numb through all of it. Like you, like I had this fake smile that no matter how sick I felt, I could give the kids big hugs and smiles and so, the six pack girls. We started this group called Girls Who Climb. And the first meetup, there was 22 of us and it was in J Tree. And that's where the six of us met. And over the years, we would have different girls come into the group. But like, let's say if someone was cheating on their boyfriend, we kicked them out. We had, we had like this moral thing of like all, all six of us were so similar that no matter how many times we added other girls, it always kind of came back down to the six of us. And on those weeks I didn't have the kids, instead of moping and wondering what I was missing with my kids, I started going out with my six pack girls and we'd all pile in the van and we'd, you know, we'd drive to Red Rock and, and do some like multi-pitching out there and go out to St. George and go climb there. And I started, instead of just planning what my kids needed, I really started figuring out who I was beside being a mom. And that was a huge step. It's kind of weird. You have whatever your life is before you have kids. And I'm sure canyoneers, climbers, everybody has this happen. You you have this life and you go, oh, I'm not going to change that life when I have kids. But then you do. And the baby cries and you can't have him at the crag. And then he's a toddler and he's getting into the things. And finding that balance of what I did on my time for me that had nothing to do with them. And then what could I do to make them start to find these things and enjoy these things? I didn't want them to turn out to be another generation of obese people fighting their weight like my family. I started getting the kids into climbing. You know, I started just by bringing them little squirt guns at the crag so that they would have something to do while we climbed, finger paints and stuff, and then waited until they wanted to 
put harnesses on and try. And now I have two little climbers and it's nice. I have my son as my built-in belayer. Uh, he's a good lead belayer. So, and he canyons with me. No, I, I, I have these every other weeks now that in the winter, I love the Eastern Sierra. I love everything from like Lone Pine, Big Pine area up through Mammoth Lakes. Um, it's just my happy place. So I love it. In the winter, I like to go out there with ice axes and crampons and camp and, and sleep in the snow. I, there's something about sleeping in the snow that just feels so like being alive to me. I do a lot of that. And then the snow melts off and it's summer. And then Crystal Crag is sitting there waiting to be climbed right in that same range. I'd still say if I, had, if I had to pick which life mattered more, I'd say it's my kids. But I'll say that my life separately from them and the adventures and the sports I do now are just as fulfilling and motivating as, like, for the kids, it was just don't die. Now I find myself saying, like, oh, you can't be inactive that many days or canyoneering is not going to be fun. It's going to suck. Like, I find the sports I love to do are motivating me to keep my fitness level where it where I need it to be to actually ha- have fun and be able to do those things. Do you think being a parent who at this point isn't only defined by being a mother, but also has her own interests, her own activities, her own pursuits, do you think that in some ways that makes you a better parent or a better example to your children because they can see a world outside of just family? Oh my God, a hundred percent. I don't want my daughter to grow up to be me of who I used to be. I still want her to have her dreams and her things. And if she wants to work, she works. And if she doesn't, she doesn't. And I I don't want her whole life to be, to have babies. Had I not been forced to make these changes, that's what I would have raised her the way I was raised. That once you, ha- once you have babies, that's the most important thing. But no, I actually very specifically started to say to the kids, I know that this house, it's always been, mommy's gonna start doing something different now. And here's why, and explained, I, for me to keep my health up, I, you know, I, I, during your weeks, I do everything around your sports and your carpools and your things. The weeks you're not here, I'm not going to come to practices anymore. I'm not going to come to all your games anymore. On the weeks that, that I'm not with you, I'm going to pursue my sports. And it was a hard transition for them for, you know, because I miss nothing with those kids. I would remind them and say to them, part of being a good mom is being healthy. And I'd say to Kaylee, well... I'm afraid if I just keep going to your games all the time and I don't do any of my own sports, I'm afraid when you grow up, you're going to do the same thing. And I'm going to be real sad if you don't have any sports you love when you grow up. And it took a little bit of adjusting, but they caught on. So we talked about kind of three seminal moments in your life. And I think you're headed potentially into a fourth one right now. (laughs) Yes, I am. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. Right as I say that my kids aren't everything, up here on the mountain is great to live when you were growing up, I don't know. I, we don't have sidewalks and we don't have mail that comes to the house. And, I, you know, I live in the mountains in a national forest. And for me, it's, it's amazing. But my kids have to go to school. There's part of the mountain, like Arrowhead area is fine. But we have a lot of meth down in VOE. Um, a lot of fentanyl up here now. There's just a lot of drugs. You know, this is one of the cheapest areas to live in California, but instead of being in the hood, you're in the beautiful mountains. A lot of bullying and a lot of drugs. My kids were in private school growing up, like when they were younger. Private school is not open for high school. It's K through eight now. In seventh grade, my daughter was bored with straight A's and we skipped her into eighth grade. 
and she still had straight A's. And so she started at the public school. She's in a position there that the kids sit the whole time playing on their phones. Nobody's listening to the teacher. She came home from her first week of public school and she said, it's so strange. The teachers don't teach. And um, the education wise, it's not good. Bullying wise, Kaylee had, she had a boy that things did not go well with last year. And so he was being horrible to her. She Right now she's 14. Most of her friends are 16. She's emotionally very ahead and grammatically and just every, she's very ahead, but, but she's still 14. So she had her little 16 year old boyfriend and he, things did not go well with them. And so he was horrible to her. We thought that it would fade off over the summer, but the third day of school, he pushed her down a flight of stairs. Our, our school up here won't get into, uh, there's two other families of girls that have been like physically hurt at that school. And there's really no, there's a, a day of in-school suspension for the person that does it. We still have a culture up here of, if she got a black eye, what'd she do to deserve it? You know, what do you say to a girl with two black eyes? Nothing. You told her twice. We're, we're, it's White Trash Mountain. So education-wise, she's not getting the education I want her to. And this kid pushes her down the stairs, and she's on crutches for a few weeks. And um, it took like eight weeks for her wrist to heal. And he got one day of in-school suspension. And I'm just done. So her best friend moved off the mountain um, two years ago. She moved to Tennessee. And Keely has been pushing and begging us three parents to go to Tennessee. And we kept saying, you know, we'll think about it, we'll think about it, maybe when her brother graduates. But that week that she got pushed down the stairs and the school didn't do shit, like, we're done. So, What about the authorities? Did the authorities do anything? Because that is assault. So the police said that because the school wasn't pressing charges, the school wasn't bringing them up, Kaylee had to press charges. We, as a family, could press charges and that they'd go arrest him. But... We have like 600 people at our school. It's a small, small area up here. I mean, this we have one high school for everybody from here to Running Springs. And Kaylee said, no, if I press charges against him, I'm gonna have to deal with all of his friends and the football team. She didn't wanna go through testifying. And she didn't, you know, because of what I do for a living, I'm an investigator, she knows that defense's job is to discredit her. She didn't want to get on the stand and say, you know, have someone try to say, oh, it's because he's your ex or he broke your heart or anything. Like, she didn't want the discrediting. So, no, we did not press charges. She shouldn't have had to. She's 14 years old. They shouldn't, it shouldn't have fallen on her to make the decision. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a criminal act. Yeah. Isn't the state or the city or whoever the one who should bring him up on charges for committing a crime? So a lot of cities, the victim doesn't have a choice. If there's any kind of physical altercation, it's it's mandatory that state presses charges or the city does. Not up here. <laughs> doesn't we don't that for some? I don't know why that doesn't exist up here. No, that's what we thought too. We thought that um, even her going to uh, urgent care, we thought they would have to pursue it because they knew she got pushed down the stairs. Um, No, it was up to Kaylee. And so we didn't do it. And um, Kaylee had a friend commit suicide last year. And I kept asking myself, he'd attempted before unsuccessfully. I kept asking myself, like, if you know your kid is getting this harassed at school, like, why wouldn't you move or do something? Like, it was unbearable for Lawrence. And so... I sat there when Kaylee got pushed down the stairs and 
and we were sitting in urgent care and I messaged my finance guy, Andrew McReynolds, and I said, can we meet this week? I wanna talk about what my finances look like. I wanna move to Tennessee. Um, I wanna see if I, if I can't keep my job, if I can retire. That was, you know, it was a Monday she got pushed down the stairs and on Thursday, Andrew and I did a conference, you know, on, we did a Zoom meeting and figured out the numbers and we figured out how much I could spend on my house and not have to work in Tennessee. And so I made an offer on a house that Friday, like within a, that one week, it was that quick. And so we're moving to Tennessee. Fortunately, my company is letting me keep my job and we're, we're tweaking parts because I'm obviously not going to do the field work for California. Um, it's going to be a fully remote job, but I'm still going to be an investigator for them. And I'm still going to, I'm going to pick up some of the stuff we were giving to independents. And when you say investigator, you are an insurance investigator, yeah, correct? Yeah, I investigate so just insurance. In case fraud. anyone thinks you're a private investigator, that is not what you're talking nope, about. Nope, nope. And I'm not law enforcement, auto insurance investigator. I want her to finish this semester of school. It's this gorgeous house in Tennessee in the most beautiful area. We're gonna live 45 minutes from one of the two girls that got assaulted at RIM. They moved after that too. They were like, screw this, we can't stay up here. Can't afford to live anywhere else in California that's a better school district. So they went to Tennessee. Then Kaylee's best friend, Izzy, and her family went to Tennessee. Now we're moving 20 minutes away from Izzy. We're getting some of uh, some of our family back that we split from, and for me, that's it's it's a little bit of a hard sell because there's not canyoneering in Tennessee. But the same way that from the day I found canyoneering, like I love it as much as climbing. Um, there's great climbing there. I'm like two hours from the red, and I'm right at Tag. I'm right at the best caving in the United States. So. I already bought Ryan Fontaine's bunch of his used gear and got my caving stuff. So I'm gonna hit the ground running there and I'll just pick a new sport. Now, instead of being in like one of the worst school districts of California, Keeley will be in the number ninth school district in all of Tennessee. So she's gonna have other kids that care about their grades and it's gonna be hard. She's gonna actually have a bunch of other kids that actually uh, care about their grades and, and <laughs> she's gonna have to, uh, she's not always gonna be the smartest one anymore. So let's talk about pros and cons. Moving across the country, you've you've always, well, you lived in San Diego at some point, you grew up in Calabasas, but you've always lived in Southern California, correct? Yeah. So let's talk about those pros and cons. So you're leaving California. You're going almost entirely across the country. Let's talk about what you're worried about leaving behind, but also what you're looking forward to besides what we've already talked about. What I'm really upset to leave behind are the people. Canyoneering is going to be heartbreaking not to have these all-day canyons that I can do, but if I could take all of the canyoneers and the friends that I've made canyoneering and bring them there... I wouldn't be worried about it. We would just start caving. My six pack girls were all a lot younger than me, pretty fit for my age. And so the climbing world, my friends were always like 15 years younger. Those girls, three of them got married. One of them moved to St. George. And then one of them is a sports reporter for USA Today. And she's always all over the world. And so um, my six pack girls were already all spread out. We just, we all get together usually like once a year, we meet somewhere. But the biggest con is leaving behind my Canyon family. Um, I have friends like Monica Hughes that I, I just, I love her and I trust her and I, and I need her friendship to 
she is my family and it's she's in Vegas so it's going to be hard to be that far away from her but we still have phones one of the things that's making it easier I have one friend that I can play hooky with I can say like oh my god I'm having the longest day of work I, I need a day off tomorrow you want to go run Eaton and he'd say sure a day or two a week we always did a canyon Every time I went on a trip, I'd be like, hey, I'm going to Monterey. You want to come? Sure. Hey, I'm going here. You want to come? Sure. Just all, my, my canyon sidekick is just done with California and decided he was moving to the Philippines. Uh, his name is John Gray. And you interviewed him before here. But John is my... Yeah, theoretically, two weeks ago, people heard an episode with him, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it a little easier to leave when the person I do most of my canyoneering with is going to be in the Philippines anyways. So that makes it a little bit easier. There's someone that moved to North Carolina, a guy named um, John Paul, that was one of my favorite people to run canyons with. And he is in um, Asheville, North Carolina. So he'll be two hours from me. One of the con, well, the biggest con is I feel like I'm leaving my family behind, which is not my physiological family, everybody's obese and dies, you know, but seriously, I have, I, I don't have a lot of families still alive, but um, my Canyon family is going to be really hard to leave behind. The pros, I had a great high school experience and I look back and I love those days and I think it helped me blend into the rest of my life confidently. I want that for my kid. My son's happy anywhere. He's 18 now. The reason Hunter doesn't keep coming up is that other than a high five in the driveway, I don't really even get to see that kid anymore. He's independent. But Kaylee is, she and I are really close. We spend a lot of time together. The biggest pro is when I have told her you know, her whole life that nothing matters more to me than her happiness and that I would do anything you know, to keep her safe. We might get to Tennessee and it might be just as bad. And she... She's an easy target because she's a sweet girl and she might get bullied and maybe she won't be any happier. But she'll always know that I meant it when I said I would drop everything to keep you safe. And so that is the biggest pro. It's also a pretty big pro to be moving into the greatest caving area. And, you know, canyoneering, I just keep getting hurt. It's, <laughs> and when I look at how many people got hurt in this last season, I think what, like six broken ankles of amongst our SoCal friends? Well, I guess Ben's not really SoCal. Everybody gets hurt. It's just kind of part of canyoneering because you can't have rushing water and rocks and not twist things. I guess it's kind of good. At, at 51, I don't heal as fast as I used to. So I'm kind of looking forward to not getting hurt. And I know you can get hurt climbing. It just doesn't seem like it's as often and as severe as everybody in canyoneering and there's a, a river that goes right past my property and I can drop a kayak in and just paddle out so California has a lot of rough water like this is not a good place to start white watering like this is a good place to come when you know how so I'm excited to start white watering from there and we have the area that I'm building the house in has a little marina with a launch for stand-up paddle boards and kayaks and stuff I've never golfed, but there's a golf course in my little neighborhood, and it's got a full fitness center and a steam room and a sauna. There's just a lot of amenities there. So I guess I'm, I'm looking a little forward in a not being in the middle of nowhere in the mountains and actually having community around me. I guess I'm looking forward to building my new family there. I'm looking forward to having a life that's with people closer to my age, doing 
different sports and and I haven't ridden horses in a long time but I rode a lot when I was little and I'm looking forward to horseback riding and cowboys <laughs> oh my god if my mom can hear me now She'd always said to me, well, when you grow up, you're going to want blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, no, that's never going to be me. That's never going to be me. I guess she's right. Maybe I'm growing up at 51. <laughs> so this is this is what I foresee based on the conversation we've had so far and the conversations I've had with you prior to this. You're going to move to this new place that, as far as I understand, you haven't spent a lot of time in prior, Mm-mm. right? So you're going to move to this new place. And it's going to be an exciting new adventure for you to discover new things, have new experiences, build a new community. And then I think what you're going to find is you then have a network across the country. You've got your network on the East Coast and the Northern South. And then you've got your network on the West Coast and the Northern West. I suspect that network will stay combined for you and then you'll move along that network as appropriate and have a variety of different experiences. And as you said, you'll be right by the Red River Gorge, which is yeah. supposed to be great climbing. It's amazing. In the I've US. only been in there once, but it's amazing. And you will also be very close to Asheville, which is a growing outdoor mecca. Yeah. So I think you're moving to a very appropriate, and then like you said, you're in the tag region. You're moving to in a very appropriate place. I think you're just going to expand your network and your yeah. opportunities are just going to expand with it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when John first decided he was moving to the Philippines, he was laughing because every week I was bringing new people with us. I said, I have to make friends. Like, you're my go-to. Like, I, I need to make friends that I can actually do things with if you're leaving. I, I started expanding even my Southern California Canyon group and, and meeting new friends and having more people come along. I'll just do that there. I don't think there's a lot of places I could be that have any sort of outdoor culture and not be happy. I'll make new friends. I always do. And gosh, three years ago, I would have told you there's nothing I'll ever love as much as climbing. Like, that's it. Climbing is it for me. And then I found canyoneering and I've hardly climbed since finding canyoneering. I love canyoneering. I don't know what my next sport will be. Maybe it's going to be golf. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's a big no. That is a big no. But um, this, the first thing that I'm buying when we get there, I'm going to get a little side-by-side so that we can drive out through the forest. You know, I'm right on a really wooded area, and and we can drive to all the amenities in our neighborhood. And golf, I don't think, is going to be the thing. But I actually think I'm going to start using the gym. Like, I haven't... I don't know how to go to the gym. I, it's just, I, from when I decided to get fit, I just started doing outdoor demanding activities. I haven't used the gym, but. Oh, sounds like an exciting new opportunity. Well, and I'm going to have to balance again. I'm going to be a full-time mom again, seven days a week, 24 seven. It'll be me. Her dad and stepmom are going to come probably next summer because they want to be closer. They, they don't want to miss Kaylee growing up, you know, hunters, hunters all grown up, but they're going to come. I'll probably have six or seven months at least before they get there. I'm going to have to find that balance again of having me time and it not just being Kaylee's stuff. I'm really kind of excited to not have to give her back on Mondays, you know, like just six months of of it just being the girls is going to be like, she's one of my favorite people to spend time with. And so it's going to be fun to explore new city and and new adventures and try new sports and all those things, doing it with her. Yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting new experience that you're going to be glad you undertook. I think you've shared a very remarkable story with us that I think is extremely interesting and dare I say inspiring, which is a word that gets overused these days, but I think is appropriately used here. 
we cannot talk forever, and uh, we have other things to do today, like go climb some like, rocks, yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to go climb. So this is where I'm going to wrap up your story, but what I always do at the end is, before we go, I ask you if you have a final thought that you would like to leave the audience with. If anyone can do something, so can you. I spent too much life thinking that only professionals did these things. Anyone can do these things. It just depends if you're willing to put the work in to get to that result, and that's up to you. So don't let anyone else define what your limit is. The only limit you have is how much work you're willing to put into to get to that goal. All right, I think you just summed up the overall ethos of this podcast (laughs) so thank you for that and thanks for letting me come over to your house and have some decaf coffee and hang out with you and your gigantic dog and uh, (laughs) hang out in your backyard having this conversation my pleasure So if you're listening to this show, I know that you know that hydration is important. But hydration isn't just for super active activities. We need to stay hydrated all the time. I bet that when you are at work or when you're on a long road trip or you're traveling across country or across the world and you're spending a lot of time in airports, I bet you're not hydrating yourself enough. So yes, we know that hydration is important. It's important at all times. And that is what Liquid IV is here to help you do. And Liquid IV comes in a bunch of delicious flavors, 12 to be precise, including things such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, lemon lime, pina colada, watermelon, strawberry, passion fruit, and it goes on. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. And you want to know why? It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, vitamin C. It has three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks, made with quality ingredients, non-GMO, and free from gluten, dairy, and soy for anyone with any sort of dietary restriction. But here's the thing that I think I like the most about Liquid IV. They are dedicated to equitable access to clean and abundant water across the world. So they're partnering with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in over 50 countries around the world. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code GOPODCAST at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code GOPODCAST at liquidiv.com. So Randy is indeed living in Tennessee now, and I checked in with her a bit. At the time, she was struggling with some health issues with one of her dogs, and so she was a little overwhelmed while she was trying to get that dog back to health. But she did say, other than that, the move to Tennessee and living there has been amazing, and she is super excited to explore the area and try a bunch of new activities and sports. So hopefully things continue to go well and hopefully her dog has a full recovery. 
And now it's that time of the show where I invite you all to go to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this, episode 111 with Randy Ball. And there you will find photographs of her in action and links to the things we talked about in today's show. And since you will already be on the internet, why not go to YouTube and check out our channel, Go Get Outside Podcast, and you can see the newly released Outside 2023 video. So if you want to see a mix of canyoneering, backpacking, climbing, and everything else that I did in 2023 along with my friends, go check that out. And if you ever want to get in touch with us here at the show, there are a number of ways to do that. You can email us, jason at gogetoutside.com. Or you can leave a voicemail or send a text message to 818-925-0106. And as always, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure you are subscribed. And if you would, please rate and review the show. But most importantly, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. Next time on the show, come back February 1st for a conversation with Justin Pugh. He's one of those outdoor generalists that do a little bit of everything from caving to climbing to canyoneering to backpacking to off-roading, and he even has a past as an urban explorer. He is also a filmmaker and the creator of the short film First Descent, The Legend of Scott Sweeney. So come back February 1st to hear all about those activities and all about the process of making that film. February 1st, Justin Pugh. See you then.